What's up, everyone? This is episode 126 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle. And as always, you guys can find me throughout the week on social media. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast, and my Twitter is at Wax Museum PC. Well, um, when this episode comes out, I am happy to say I will be on my way to Chicago. There's a little show there this week called The National. You might have heard of it. I'll be there. But um, fear not, this show must go on. I didn't want to just skip out on this show just because I'm out of town. So I recorded it a day early, wanted to make sure you guys could get it. Because I've got a couple things that I want to tackle for you today. Uh, First one is not great news. Um, I uncovered another altered Anthony Davis RPA on Monday. Unfortunately, now we're up to at least six of those that have swapped patches. I'm going to try and run you through the details surrounding that. Um, And then last weekend, I asked people to submit questions for a listener mailbag. And as usual, they did not disappoint. Uh, I got questions about my fandom. I got questions about my collection. I got questions about the hobby in general. You guys know I like talking about all three of those things. So this was a fun one to put together. I'll tackle all of those questions and more in just a few moments. Let me talk about this Anthony Davis RPA here real quick. Uh, As many of you know, I've been piecing together RPA trackers for some of the bigger names in the hobby for a little over two years now. And I've tried to keep these updated to the best of my ability. If you see something that needs added or corrected, please let me know. It always helps to have more sets of eyes on these things. Um, Anyway, back in July of 2019... I made a collage of four copies of this Anthony Davis card that I had blurry pictures of. In other words, I could see the autograph placement, I could see the patch, but I couldn't make out the serial numbers on them 100%, so I couldn't really, you know, say if they were good or say if they were altered or even place them in the sequence where they go. Um, So I, I took that collage and I posted it on the blowout forums to see maybe if someone had better eyes than I did or if somebody could help. I wasn't able to make any real progress, so those four had kind of been a mystery for me for about two years now. Well, um, you know, I was actually going through some of my files. I was going through my phone, trying to get rid of pictures to clear up some memory for my trip to the National, and I saw one of these blurry pictures again, and of course that sent me down the rabbit hole. So looking at it on my phone, I zoomed in on it, and I noticed... The serial number, I thought, you know what, it could look like 99 out of 199. So I checked my computer to see, you know, maybe I've, uh, maybe that patch has come up in the last two years and um, I can, you know, get rid of that one from my collage. So I checked my file and yes, I had added one recently. So I had something to compare it to. Only the newer picture, which was in a BGS 9.5 slab, it also had a newer patch. And I lined up the autographs just to double-check everything. It ended up they were the same card with the swapped patch. Um, The original picture was part of a tweet that linked to an eBay auction from 2014. So that helped, you know, kind of give some provenance to it. So sometime in the last seven years, this patch was swapped out. And no one figured figured it out. No one else knew about it, apparently, save for whoever did it. Um, And like I said, they even tricked BGS because it's in a BGS slab. And I know BGS does, um, they they focus more on grading the card than the patch, but 
um, you know, whoever swapped it out did a good enough job that they didn't damage the card and it still got a really high grade of a 9.5. So um, to answer a question that I get a lot because I, I post these pictures, people say, why would someone swap the patch out? Well, the short answer to that is greed. Because these um, chunky multicolor patches command quite a premium over the screen printed nameplate patches. So anyway, that one's out there. I posted about it this weekend. You know, truth be told, I feel bad for whoever owns it now. I'm not trying to ruin their day. You know, I mean, it wasn't me that did it. It was whoever faked it is the one who ruined their day. Um, I'm not trying to ruin the value of an asset. You know, hopefully they're able to trace this card back to whoever did it. And and this is a long shot here, but maybe even BGS could intervene and try and help them out. Um, and also remember, you know, if you see one of these cards on someone's page, you can alert them, but please be... Uh, kind about it. Just because someone owns an altered card doesn't mean they did it, and it doesn't mean that they're some sort of horrible person. Okay, so if you want more information about that, I posted some pictures on a blowout thread. Be sure to check that out when you get a chance. Okay, before I move into today's main segment, I want to take a moment to remind you how you can support this show. As you guys know, there are costs that go into producing a podcast, and it's also a very time-consuming effort. One of my goals is to always keep the show itself free. So as a result, I've signed up for affiliate programs with eBay and Fanatics. If you'd like to help support the show in this way, go to www.waxmuseumpodcast.com, click whatever store you need to go to, shop as planned, and the show gets a small commission in the process. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. This is Slick Leonard. You're listening to the Wax Museum Podcast. Boom, baby! Okay, so today I have for you the fifth installment of the listener mailbag. And as I mentioned earlier, the majority of today's questions fit into three main categories. That would be my fandom, my collection, and then general hobby topics. So I'm going to address them in that order. So let's start with fandom. Um, Question number one comes from... Japan Sports Card Collecting, they ask, who is your current favorite Pacers player? Um, I guess I should preface this by saying I'm, I'm recording this on Tuesday. I don't know what's going to change this week. You know, you'd think I'd have an answer queued up for this immediately, but this is one I had to think about for a little bit. There are a lot of guys I like on this roster, but not a lot that really excite me. And I think my perception of the team's probably a little bit hindered by last season, It was not a fun season at all. But right now, I'd say it's a toss-up between TJ Warren and Miles Turner, which I've seen their names thrown out a lot this week. Kind of scares me. I like TJ because he just kind of quietly goes about his business. He's got a pretty unique mid-range game where, you know, if he gets into a certain range, and uh, I I feel pretty good about him making it. I'll put it that way. He's got a nice soft touch. And, And then he could already shoot the three when he came to Indiana, but he expanded his range a little bit. And I felt like that added another dimension to his game. Um, Of course, the 53-point game and subsequent uh, 30-point performances in the bubble really stick out to me because they gave me something to get excited about when the pandemic hit and when the hobby and life in general was turned upside down. So I'll always remember that. Um, And then I like, I mentioned Miles Turner. I like him for a couple different reasons. Number one, I just like his game. He's a big that can shoot the ball. He can protect the rim. I think that's severely underrated in today's NBA. Um, 
The second reason why I like Miles is because he provides the organization with some continuity. He was drafted by the team in 2015, and he's the longest tenured pacer by a long shot. It's always nice to have those links to the past. Um, so, you know, understandably, I cringe every time I see people trying to orchestrate these Miles Turner trades. It's It happens all the time, happens every year, and I'm ready for it to be done. Okay, and this actually, this segues me to my next question, which comes from Instagram user at the corners finest. He asked, if you were given control of the Pacers, what moves would you make right now to make the team a contender? Um, there are some big stars available right now, like Bradley Beal and Damian Lillard. And I'd, I'd love to say, well, I could just move these pieces for those guys, but I don't think we have a shot at either of those guys. So I'm not going to try that. Um, I would love to see the Pacers make a real hard push for Ben Simmons with maybe a, a combination of Brogdon, Jeremy Lamb, a draft pick, probably another piece, maybe even TJ Warren because he's an expiring. Um, ben Simmons is an incredible talent, and the Pacers will never be able to sign someone of his caliber. And if you think I'm joking, the biggest free agent acquisition the Pacers have ever had is David West. And that's a fact. You can look it up. People just aren't lining up to play basketball in Indiana. Um, I think Ben's a reclamation project that's worth taking on. They don't need him to score. They don't need him to run the point, even though I'm I'm sure he would. They don't need him to close games. And I would slide Ben into the four spot and possibly, I know this isn't going to be popular, I would aggressively then shop Sabonis while his value is still relatively high. I don't think Sabonis, you know, he's not big enough to be a five um, he can't guard fives, but he wants to be a five. That's kind of a tough spot for them to be in. Um, so if you combine all that with the late season edition of O'Shea Brissett and TJ Warren coming back at full strength, I think it could be a really good Pacers squad. Some of you might be shaking your head after listening to that. Don't ruin this for me. It's only July. All right, next question. Also about my fandom, Clips and Vols ask, will you still be a Fever fan if they move to Oakland? Well, obviously, I don't feel the same connection to the Fever that I do with the Pacers. For those of you that don't know, the Fever is the Indiana WNBA team. Well, you know, my dad watched the Pacers in the ABA days, and he kind of passed that fandom down to me. The Fever have been around since 2000, and I'm just now starting to watch them. I know I'm I'm late to the party here. Um, but I want to support them because they're my quote-unquote home team. A move wouldn't crush me or anything like that, though. There are some WNBA squads that are a lot more talented and a lot more fun to watch. I think I would still enjoy the league in general, even if that move happened. Um, I don't think I'd claim them at that point, though, if that makes any sense. All right, the next question moves us into questions about my collection. It comes from Nebrolian PC. Um, so Hugo asked me, what's your thought process when looking to acquire a new card for your PC? And I'm going to combine that with another question because I think they go great together. KPB underscore cards ask, one of your recent guests, Alex, talked about his pyramid of what he collects. If you were to put together your pyramid, what would it look like? Well, I'm looking at cards all the time. That could be on Instagram, on eBay, in person at shows. A lot of times I find stuff to buy that I wasn't looking for. So if I'm not careful, that can get out of hand real quick. I have to try and set up some parameters. 
So I'm mainly looking at what resources do I have to work with, be it cash, PayPal, or other cards, and then how does this fit my collection? Why do I want this card? And I've never sat down and hammered out a pyramid like Alex, but I definitely have some form of that hierarchy in my brain because I can't afford everything that just looks cool. So um, I'm mainly looking for these things, rare Pacers pieces, uh, NBA Finals relics, and then cards that help celebrate or narrate the history of the game. And then I'm going to add in unique card innovations as well. So if I can find something that fits into multiple tiers, I know I have something that I'm going to value for a long time. For example, that Reggie Miller Finals patch I talked about uh, and showed off recently, that hits all four of those tiers in one way or another. And I mentioned it at the time, I felt like I probably overspent on the card, but it checked too many boxes to sit and watch someone else walk away with it. Okay, so those are kind of my parameters. Do I always follow my own rules? No, I don't. And I have a bunch of random stuff to prove that I don't. But I think I do a pretty good job, and that helps position me to make a run at something if it shows up and if I really want it. Okay, next question comes from Tim at the Pact of the Future podcast. He said, what Pacers player do you regret buying a card of the most? And I'll add here, I had another question from Tim where he was feeling a little rambunctious and wanted to brag about championships. So I answered that one on his show. If you haven't listened to that one already, make sure you do that. Pack to the Future podcast, I always recommend them. Really enjoy um, my interactions with those guys. But as far as a Pacers player um, card that I regret, you know, as a team collector, I'll still buy cards of players I don't like. If the card itself is from a set that I need or if it's something really rare like a Logo Man or an insane jumbo patch. So let's take a guy like TJ Leaf. He's not on the team anymore. I didn't like him. I don't like him. And I just bought a jumbo tag of him because it was from a set I liked and a price point I liked. I think I got it for 20 bucks. It's a giant laundry tag. So I really like that. Um, now for TJ Leaf, I have a jumbo tag. I have a letter patch. I have a couple of other nice cards for him. I'm probably done buying his stuff. Um, but, you know, who knows? I might see something else that catches my eye. So I, I can't think of any major regrets at the moment. I'm still pretty intentional about what I'm buying. And most of these guys I'm buying low anyway. Like I have a Tyreek Evans Galactic, but I only bought it for $11. So I don't regret that at all. Okay, next question. Um, we go from Ty- Tyreek Evans to a Pacers player that I like a lot more. Mostly 90s basketball card ask, what's your favorite Reggie Miller insert? Well, I'm still more of a memorabilia over insert kind of guy, but I'm going to give you two that I own that come to mind real quick, and then I've got one that I don't own that I'll close with that I want. Um, the first one's pretty well known. It's a 1998-99 Skybox Molten Metal Fusion. Um, I like the classic shot of him shooting, and then you know, I guess you'd call it the the dots or the imprints that make up his portrait in the background. That's a really cool card. Um, another one that I like that isn't from a real sought after set, or, and and I don't think it's really, um, you know, known set or talked about set, even though there's some guys in there like Kobe. Uh, it's from 2000 2001 Topps Finest, and it's called Title Quest. And even though it's from Finest, it's not a chromium card. It's got more of a glossy surface and some reddish-brownish foil in the background, at least for the Eastern Conference players. The Western Conference versions are kind of ugly. Maybe that's why people don't talk about it. But 
Um, on this one, there's a Pacers logo in the background. There's some gold foil with the nameplate. It's just a really good looking card. I'll try and post one of these up because I, I don't feel like my description did the card justice. So those are our two inserts that I own. There is one Reggie Miller Panini insert, believe it or not, that I'd like to own. That's the 2017-2018 Panini Cornerstones Downtown. Um, and, and a couple years ago, I spent something stupid like, I think like $75, um, $75 trying to win this one in a Raz when I should have just bought it outright. And now that set shot up in value, and I'm sitting here twiddling my thumbs. But um, the thing I really like about that card is that they put Indy cars on it, and I went to the Indy 500 a couple times in the late 90s, so um, maybe someday people will sour on those a little bit, and I can grab one from my PC. Okay, next question comes from Tough Times Cards, and he basically asked me, what former Pacers would you like to see Panini get to sign again? Um, or in some cases sign if they hadn't signed already. So the Pacers really haven't had a lot of legends. In fact, like the entire 80s are just forgettable for the Pacers, unfortunately. Um, and then the majority of the guys I'd want on new Panini cards have already passed away, which would be guys like Roger Brown and Slick Leonard. Um, so the list is pretty short. I think uh, Ron Artest had some Panini autographs, but they were Lakers cards. I'd love to see him in some of these nicer canvas or acetate sets with an on-card Pacers autograph. Um, I've mentioned his many name changes before, but one thing that's really cool about Ron signing stuff, he signs with whatever name and number the item is. And I've seen him do a couple of private signings over the past year. He took his time, and he really paid attention to the details. I imagine he'd do the same if he were asked to sign... Uh, by Panini, although of course it'd have to be on card then, so he'd know what number to sign. And then of course it'd be nice to get some premium Jeff Foster stuff today too. I know that wouldn't go over well. Imagine the reactions we'd get when people spend thousands of dollars on a box of National Treasures and they pull a Jeff Foster sticker auto. I think heads would explode. So most of the other guys, you know, they've already had, they got J.O. a couple years ago. They just got Al Harrington to sign a bunch of stuff. The big holdout for the longest time was Reggie, and they got him to sign a ton of stuff over the span of a couple years, so really not too many guys left that I would be looking for. All right, 77 NCAA champs ask, if you lost everything in a hurricane, tornado, fire, etc., would you start over? So this is a, a situation that I hope to never find myself in, and I hope none of you do either, but uh, losing a collection would be tough because I spent so much time curating this whole thing. Um, I think that kind of a, of a catastrophe would be a real sobering reminder of how fleeting this whole thing can really be. As we know, cards are material, and they can be gone in an instant. Um, and cards can be insured, so it's not so much a value thing, but there are some rare cards that, if they're destroyed, there's never going to be another copy, no matter how much money's on the table. Um, so to answer the original question, would I start over? I think I would. Um, I mentioned earlier that, that cards are fleeting in material, but I want to make the distinction that the hobby, on the other hand, is not. So I think I would still collect because of the connections I've made, the connection it gives me to the past, the connection to my past. Um, it helps me piece together NBA history, and I just enjoy the chase. Now, would I collect with the same level of intensity that I do today? Probably not. 
I think a situation like that would kind of change my perspective on things a little bit. Um, I got another question then from 77 NCAA champs. After that, he said, pick 10 cards to keep and the rest will be sold off. I'm going to hold off on that one for now simply because I think it would be a good episode for the future. So it might not be soon, but I have been looking to make a few lists. Um, You saw that recently with my Card Show Digs episode, so be on the watch for that for the future. Next question comes from Mr. Archer. He says, two-part national question. Number one, what trends are you looking to pay attention to at the national? And number two, what are three to five things on your personal national pickup list? As you guys know, I do my fair share of people watching whenever I go to a show. So I I don't have any specific trends that I'm looking out for, though. You know, I I know there's all the things people have talked about. Cameras all over the place, people making content, um, all that kind of stuff. You know, it's it's whatever. More than anything, I just want to have a good time. And I, I plan on doing some sort of a recap when I get back. So I think I'm going to have... Justin aka 610 sports cards back on the show it's been a while and that way I can get a dealer's perspective so I'll be on one side of the table he'll be on the other side I think that would be um, kind of a good way to wrap things up as far as what I'd like to pick up for myself I really 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 want to come home with a 57 tops Bill Russell rookie I'm trying to position myself where I can make a run at a low grade copy but I don't know a couple days ago you know of course a beat-up PSA 1 sold for a stupid high amount. So things are going to have... The stars are going to have to align. I don't think I'll be able to pull it off, but it won't be for lack of trying. Other than that, I'd like to stick to the pyramid I outlined earlier. And then I'd love to spend some time digging through quarter and dollar boxes because I I think there will be some good deals to be found in there. You just got to dig for them. All right, moving into more general hobby topics. And... um. Rudy, ask a question here. I I wish I knew how to say your Instagram name. I'm not going to try it, though, because I know I'll butcher it. Um, But Rudy asked, what do you think of the phenomenon of cards going way above comps on whatnot when being sold by content creators? I'll be honest, I didn't know this was a thing. I've heard a lot about whatnot lately. It it looks like it could be a fun way to buy and sell cards. Um, I don't really do the whole, you know, video streaming of sales I don't really do a lot of sales on Instagram or anything, but I'm not going to try and dissuade anyone else from from doing that on there. But um, you know, let's just let's say you know I'll throw out a random name there. Let's say you really enjoy Eddie from Investacard, and for whatever reason you're willing to pay a small premium to buy a card from him specifically because you put a value on that experience. Maybe that's your way of supporting what he does. You know, it's your money and and you're free to spend it however you want. The only thing we need to be careful about, though, is that these premiums shouldn't be listed with other comps. Because we're in a phase of the hobby right now where sales information is a really big deal, and that information without context is only presenting a part of the picture. Um, For what it's worth, I know I've shared some of their stuff lately, I think CardLadder does a pretty good job of supplying context for some of the bigger sales in the hobby. Um... But anyway, uh, going back to the question, it all comes down to this. Know what you're willing to spend on a card, and if you're happy with your purchase, so be it. Okay, next question comes from Alex, a.k.a. Connell Collection. His name actually came up earlier in one of the other questions. You've heard him on the show before, and also, Alex, congratulations on landing 
that Bill Russell incredible autograph and finishing that set. Uh, Alex asked me, would would love to or said would love to hear your opinion on the upcoming Upper Deck Space Jam cards. Will we see a dual LeBron and Anthony Davis autos, and what kind of market will there be? Uh, let me give a disclaimer here. I haven't seen the movie yet, although I have heard a lot about it. I think it's cool that there's a set that goes along with it. I'm not expecting much though, and I'm definitely not expecting much in terms of autographs, considering we barely get any LeBron signatures in Goodwin. I, I don't think the guy likes signing. And quite frankly, he doesn't need to. And um, so if if there is a LeBron and AD duel, it's probably, you know, it'll probably be sought after by Lakers fans. But it, it might not be LeBron and AD. It might be LeBron and his character, the brow. Because, you know, this isn't an NBA set. So people are going to have to reconcile with that if they want, if that duel even comes out and if they want it. Um, the sell sheets that I've seen have been pretty underwhelming. There's a lot of cool stuff they could do here, even without the autos. I know they brought back Fleer Metal for some of the Marvel and the hockey stuff. We still haven't seen it much for basketball since the UD Retro product, but that's been almost a, you know, a decade. Um, I think people would tolerate a few Lola Bunny PMGs if it meant they got more LeBron Retro stuff too, but... For whatever reason, Upper Deck hasn't been in a big hurry to capitalize on that. I know I tweeted them about it, and they said, you know, we've got stuff in the works, so we'll see what comes of that. But whatever they do with this set, I hope it's something that kids get a chance to open and something that might help transition them into the hobby in the long run. Okay, um, got a question here from Nebrolian PC. He said, how do you feel about Nat Turner becoming the new CEO at PSA? <laughs> So a lot of you have messaged me about the whole situation. And um, the moment that that group brought, bought Collector's Universe, I think we all knew the clock was running for our good friends, Steve and Joe. And technically, I, I know Joe said he stepped down, right? But either way, I, I was never a big fan of Joe. And you guys know that if you've listened here. Uh, because to me, he took a very condescending tone toward the people that were helping to put a kibosh on... Um, card alterations, be trimming, patch swaps, all those things. It's like he took it personal that his company didn't catch those things, and he took it out on the people discovering them instead of the perpetrators themselves. So anyway, enough about Joe. Um, I I hope Nat's a little more receptive to the people that are trying to help. I think he will be. He seems to be so far. Um, and I also think he's going to help bring them up to pace when it comes to technology. I think he understands the value of information. Um, I don't really know what to think of the move yet, though. I want to give them a little more time before I weigh in. And, um, you know, I, I still want to see what, what's going to become of this backlog. Because they want to reduce the backlog, but then they want to open up service levels at the same time. Those two things kind of work against one another. So they're in a tricky situation, but I'm, I'm curious to see uh, how they're going to get out of it. Okay, that moves us into the next question, which is also about PSA. Bobby Z 1987 asks, Do you think PSA's current pricing will spill over to the slabs that have been graded already and force them to adjust pricing up, thus create an inflationary effect, especially since there's no timetable for when other services will open up and no transparency for service pricing decreasing or increasing? All right, what I believe Bobby's asking here is, will previously graded cards become so valuable that it prompts PSA to raise their prices again? 
Um, I think the ongoing backlog situation could definitely affect pricing on a small number of cards. Maybe something uh, like this year's Prism, where there was a really small window to get those in, but not enough to where PSA goes any higher on their side. There's enough competition out there now that they do have to check themselves a little bit. Um, that's really all I have for that particular question. However, it got me thinking about slabbed cards and prices in general. So I do have one more note I want to make. And once again, this is not directed at the person that asked that question. It is not an answer to that question. Um, but I felt like it's a good spot to add this in. So the thing that really shocks me right now is the people that are holding strong on the really liquid stuff. I saw a video of a guy at a card show a couple weeks ago, and he said that like a fourth of his case was um, slab Zion stuff. But when buyers asked him for prices, he basically said he wouldn't go low enough to meet the market, and he was holding on to them for now. Well, number one, don't use them to fill out your showcase at a card show. Uh, it's not even a good flex because everyone and their mother has those cards. And then number two, you do realize how many Zions are coming back in this avalanche of 12 million slapped cards, right? Um, now, I wouldn't expect anyone to give them away, but I definitely wouldn't be clutching onto them for dear life. But you know what? I guess some people need to take a few bumps for things to really sink in. Um, speaking of shows, the next question is from a local friend of mine that sets up at a lot of local shows, Greg, a.k.a. 727 Sports Card. He said, from a dealer's perspective, what are your thoughts on Friday-Saturday card shows during football season as opposed to Saturday-Sunday shows? Well, if I'm a dealer that can set up at both of those days, I, I suppose I have no issues with it. I know I, I try and watch my Colts games every week, and those are usually on Sunday. There are a lot of other people that will skip Sunday shows for the same reason. And, you know, I suppose Saturdays you've got college football to contend with. I don't know if there's a perfect solution, but I think it's worth a shot. I guess the other thing might be get some TVs in there. I've seen some card shows recently with DJs. Uh, why not TVs? All right. 82 Gray said, Kyle, I'd love to learn a bit about Leaf cards. Their patch cards pop up a lot on eBay, and I'm curious to know a bit about them and how they release their cards. Their website didn't give much away. Okay, so Leaf releases cards in a number of different ways, but the basketball patches, I'm talking about the patches specifically, usually come in some sort of, of a product that they distribute as, as sealed boxes. They had uh, Best of Basketball products in 2016. They had um, Leaf in the game used in 2018 and 2020. They also had Leaf Pearl. I'm probably missing something, but those are the big ones I remember from the last five years. Now, I've asked Leaf on several occasions where they get their jerseys from. Not as a, you know, gotcha kind of thing, but you guys know I'm into that. I love sourcing jerseys and getting pictures of the players wearing the jersey that was cut up, if possible. Um, so they told me they got a lot of their 2000s basketball stuff from Dr. Brian Price when they bought out his company in the game. And Dr. Price was active in buying stuff from the Fleer bankruptcy sale, so there's a good chance that a lot of their basketball patches of early 2000s players are from old Fleer jerseys. Now, the higher-end guys like um, Kobe and Jordan, I don't know, and LeBron, I don't know where they're getting that stuff from. Um, I was very close to purchasing a Jordan J nameplate from a Wizards jersey. It was a, a Leaf Pearl card. It was a really nice-looking card. I asked where they got it from, 
They said Brian purchased the jersey from an auction a few years before. I couldn't get any specific info, though. I couldn't match up the mesh holes to any that I'd seen at major uh, major auction houses. So I, you know, I didn't pull the trigger. That doesn't mean it's not legitimate, but um, I didn't, for the price of that one, I didn't feel comfortable going after it. But um, all in all, I like Leafs' patch cards a lot. And I think they could add a lot more value to their products if they took pictures of the source material and included it on the back of their cards like Donruss used to do. I mentioned this when one of their employees was on the Sports Card Live show on, on YouTube with Jeremy Lee. And they acted intrigued by the idea, but I, I don't think it's happening anytime soon. All right. Um, I Collect Wade said, I just got myself the Hot Hands insert of Wade. Are there any other pre-Panini inserts on the same level? Some of you might remember me talking about this set before. It's from 2004-2005 Fleer Showcase. I picked up the art test for my collection. I can't think of any other sets on that level that include Wade. But um, those cards are really incredible in person, and they're really tough to track down. It has the look of a really rare card, and it actually is really rare. So maybe someone that's listening out there has another set in mind. Shoot, um, I collect Wade. It's all one, all together. I collect Wade. Shoot him a message and let him know. Troublesome Cards said, I was wondering about your thoughts about the LaMelo Ball autograph redemption saga. What do you think the possible outcome could be if these aren't honored? If you had a ball redemption, would you sell now or hold to see what Panini plans to do about it? Um, I'll answer the last part first. If I had one, I'd be selling it ASAP because prices are high and I don't think he's going to sign. Um, Now, I've seen people suggest if he doesn't sign, there's going to be all sorts of legal action against Panini. I don't know if if there's really much of a case for that. You know, they're building a checklist and they're building a sell sheet off of the understanding that athletes are going to commit to sign. Do I think it's slimy that they're still putting LaMelo autographs on sell sheets in July? Absolutely. Do I think they're going to get in any major trouble for not delivering on this promise? Probably not. My guess is that they'll build some sort of LaMelo packs that are similar to the Kobe packs if, if he doesn't sign and then they'll just call it a day. Okay, the last question comes from underscore Shane Hu. He said, I'd love to know some of your lot finding secrets on eBay. Never had much luck finding okay lots to purchase. Well, I don't think I've talked about it on this show yet, but I recently found a Barry Sanders Playmakers Theater in an eBay lot. So, uh, you know, I felt like the lot buying era for me was winding down, but that kind of re-energized me, so it, it shows me there are still some incredible cards out there that need to be unearthed. Finding them can be tough, though. And I'm not going to go into too much detail here because I want to do a top five lot finds episode, and I'll, I'll cover it more there, but I'll mention a few things real quick. There aren't amazing tricks or secrets I can share with you, just general guidelines. Number one, for every lot I find... I look at thousands, sometimes as many as 10,000 listings. So you have to be willing to put in the work. Number two, you have to study and know your stuff. You're not likely to find a PMG that sticks out like a sore thumb. You're going to need to be more up to date on parallels that look very similar to base cards. uh, The players that sell for more money than you'd think they would, that kind of stuff. And And that just comes with time. And then number three, take calculated risks. If you see a $50 lot that has a $50 card in it, but you can't see any other stuff, buy it and be okay with breaking even. 
The only thing it's going to cost you is a little bit of your time. Um, I bought a lot this week for, I think I got it for $120 shipped. It hasn't come in yet. There's an Iverson new edition in there, which depending on condition, is probably going to be like a $60 or $75 card. Um, you know, I could eat 40, 50 bucks on that lot. I don't know. But because that card was in there and a few of the other things I saw encouraged me to buy it, you just have to take some risks sometime and be comfortable with that. For me, there's an experience cost of buying that lot, sorting it, putting it online for others to see. So I'm okay with that in some cases. Okay, um, like I said earlier, I'll go into more detail when I do my lots episode, but this will at least give you guys a starting point. So that's it for all the questions. I hope you enjoyed that. I like doing these mailbag episodes, and I've had several people reach out and say they want me to do more. I tried to respond to every question. If I somehow missed yours, I apologize. If you want me to elaborate more on something, feel free to reach out to me on social media. You can find me on Instagram under at Wax Museum Podcast or Twitter under the handle at Wax Museum PC. If you enjoyed today's episode, I encourage you to support the show by doing all of your eBay purchasing through the link on my site, which is www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. There's a big eBay logo at the top. Click that, and it should give me a small percentage of whatever you purchase in the 24 hours that follow. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcast. Hit up the Podbean site for a link to the merch store. Tag Taco Bell and let them know they can pay me in burritos. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast. Thank you.